0: premillennialists often assume that anyone who acknowledges the preliminary comings does not believe in a final and climactic coming but that conclusion does not follow the scriptures clearly represent Christ as coming in some manifestations to the people of his own generation and to later generations and they just as clearly set forth his coming in glory and judgment at the end of the age It is worthy of note that the New Testament never speaks of the return of Christ as His second coming. No doubt for this reason that He comes in various ways and at all periods of world history. During the Old Testament era, God came to men on numerous occasions, to Abraham when He announced that Sodom would be destroyed, to Jacob as He wrestled with the angel, to Moses at the burning bush and on Mount Sinai, to Manoah and his wife when he announced that a son, Samson, would be born, to the boy Samuel in the temple, etc. An appearance such as these is called a theophany. The angel of Jehovah who made these appearances was in time revealed as the Christ of the New Testament, the second person of the Trinity, who in all ages has been the mediator between God and man. Time and again the providential presence or activity of God in human affairs is spoken of as God's coming to or meeting with his people. The Old Testament representations throw much light on the New Testament teaching, and we are prepared to find that the coming of Christ is not limited to his final, climactic coming. Quite naturally, a certain amount of misunderstanding has arisen because the New Testament does not draw a sharp distinction between the partial, preliminary comings and the final coming. Some further points which are often overlooked are brought out by Dr. Craig in the following paragraph. It is the thought of the Lord's return as absolutely certain rather than the thought of it as imminent that dominates the New Testament. Moreover, if we are to appreciate the emphasis that the New Testament places on this blessed hope, we must remember that it is the hope not only of the saints on earth, but also of all those who in the ages past have entered into their rest. It is the hope, therefore, of Abraham and Isaiah and Paul, no less than of those of us who still labor on the earth. Hence, assuming that we die before the final return of our Lord, we will continue to long for it until it actually takes place. That is to say, all the saints, whether they are in heaven or on earth, are looking for that blessed hope in the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And the reason for this is to be found in the fact that the saints do not attain their full blessedness until the second advent. Unquestionably, the blessed dead are in a state of bliss as compared with what they experienced on earth. Nonetheless, better things are in store for them and these better things will not be theirs until at his coming, Jesus will give them their resurrection bodies and say unto them, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world a quote from Jesus as he was and is page 286 chapter 10 page 263 the resurrection the distinctive feature of premillennialism as it relates to the resurrection is that there is not to be one general resurrection as set forth in post and amillennialism but two or more limited resurrections separated by at least a thousand years between the first and the last. Historic premillennialism holds that the first resurrection is that of the saints, both Old and New Testament saints, who are raised at the coming of Christ and who are to reign with him through the millennium, and that a thousand years later, at the end of the millennium, there occurs the resurrection of the wicked of all ages, who are raised for judgment and condemnation. Dispensationalism requires three or perhaps four resurrections to meet the demands of its system. According to this system, the first, that of the saints, occurs at the rapture. This is followed seven years later at the revelation by the resurrection of other saints who have died or been put to death during the Great Tribulation. Both historic premillennialism and dispensationalism logically calls for a resurrection at the end of the millennium of the righteous, who have died during that time. Presumably there will be some death of the righteous as well as of the wicked during the millennium, for we read, The child shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be accursed. Isaiah 65.20 Dr. Schofield neglected to give any pronouncement regarding this point, and no other authoritative voice has been able to do so. Also, dispensationalism holds that there is to be a resurrection of the wicked of all the ages at the end of the millennium, that being the force needed to meet the requirements of this system. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6 The premillennial view is based primarily on three scripture references. The first is Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, which is the chief and only direct support for the doctrine of two or more resurrections it reads as follows. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and such as worship not the beast, neither his image, and receive not the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead lived not until the thousand years should be finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. In our discussion of postmillennialism, we have given what we believe to be the correct interpretation of this passage, which is that it is not a description of a physical resurrection at all, but rather a figurative description of the righteous dead in the intermediate state, or as some prefer to take it, that it relates to the regeneration of the soul, which change carries over into the intermediate state as its chief sphere of activity. We have noted that there is no reference in these verses to the Jews, nor to Jerusalem, nor to an earthly kingdom of any kind, all of which are important elements in the premillennial scheme. Furthermore, John saw the souls, not the bodies, of those who were reigning with Christ. And most important of all, we noted that in verse 6, the first resurrection is set in contrast with the second death, which clearly cannot be a second physical death, but which in verse 14 is set forth as the state of eternal punishment of the wicked. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, even the lake of fire. Since in this passage the second death is not a physical death, there is no reason to believe that the first resurrection is a physical resurrection. Clearly, both are figurative expressions. In support of the view that the first resurrection finds its fulfillment in the regeneration of the soul, we find various scripture passages which use similar language. In Colossians 2.12 we read, wherein ye were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Here the new birth is directly called being raised with him. In Colossians 3.1 we read, If then ye were raised together with Christ, past tense, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. In Ephesians 2.5 we are told that God made us alive together with Christ. In Romans 6.13 there is the command present yourselves unto God as alive from the dead. In Romans 6.4 our walk in newness of life is compared with his resurrection. In John 11 verses 25 and 26 this new life of the soul is said to continue on into eternity without interruption. I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth on me though he die yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. In these verses, the change that is brought about by regeneration, in which the soul is brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, is set forth as in one sense a resurrection, and is likened to or compared with the resurrection of Christ. Concerning the premillennial doctrine of two resurrections, Dr. Burkhoff says, The only scriptural basis for this theory is Revelation 20 verses 1 through 6 after an Old Testament content has been poured into it. This is a very precarious basis for various reasons. Number one, the passage occurs in a highly symbolical book and is admittedly very obscure as may be inferred from the different interpretations of it. Two, the literal interpretation of this passage as given by premillenarians leads to a view that finds no support elsewhere in Scripture, but is even contradicted by the rest of the New Testament. This is a fatal objection. Sound exegesis requires that the obscure passages of Scripture be read in the light of the clearer ones, and not vice versa. 3. Even a literal interpretation of the premillenarians is not consistently literal, for it makes the chain in verse 1 and consequently also the binding in verse 2, figurative, often conceives of the thousand years as a long but undefined period, and changes the souls of verse 4 into resurrection saints. 4. The passage, strictly speaking, does not say that the classes referred to, the martyr saints and those who did not worship the beast, were raised from the dead, but simply that they lived and reigned with Christ. And this living and reigning with Christ is said to constitute the first resurrection. Number 5. There is absolutely no indication in these verses that Christ and his saints are seen ruling on the earth. In the light of such passages as Revelation 4 verse 4 and chapter 6 verse 9, it is far more likely that the scene is laid in heaven. 6. It also deserves notice that the passage makes no mention whatever of Palestine, of Jerusalem, of the temple, and of the Jews, the natural citizens of the millennial kingdom. There is not a single hint that these are in any way concerned with this reign of a thousand years. A quote from Systematic Theology, page 715. Interesting and instructive also is the view of Professor Hamilton who believes that the first resurrection has reference to the regeneration of the soul, and that it continues through the intermediate state. Says he, The first resurrection is the new birth of the believer, which is crowned by his being taken to heaven to be with Christ in his reign during the interadventual period. This eternal life, which is the present possession of the believer, and is not interrupted by the death of the body, is the first resurrection, and participation in it is the millennial reign. He continues, In John 5, verses 24 through 29, we have two resurrections brought together in the same paragraph. He that heareth my word, and believeth him that sent me, hath eternal life, and cometh not into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour cometh, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Marvel not at this, for the hour cometh in which all they that are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. Now though the word first resurrection is not used in this paragraph, clearly the fact is taught inescapably. What else can we call passing out of death into life but resurrection? Notice that it is contrasted with the resurrection which takes place when the dead bodies of all men are raised. Notice also that it is said that all that are in the tombs shall hear the voice of Christ and come forth. Then, as they come forth from the tombs, the separation takes place into the resurrection of life and the resurrection of judgment. The use of these two terms, resurrection of life and resurrection of judgment, in connection with the previous statement that all hear Christ's voice and come forth for the separation into the resurrection of life and resurrection of judgment, in no way indicates a separation in time of a thousand years, as the premillennialists claim. For it distinctly says that all, good and bad, hear the voice and come forth. A quote from The Basis of Millennial Faith, page 117. These considerations make it quite evident that the first resurrection, referred to in Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6, is not to be taken literally, and our conclusion must be that this passage does not support the premillennial doctrine of two or more physical resurrections. The second passage quoted by premillennialists as supporting the doctrine of two resurrections is First Corinthians fifteen verses twenty-two through twenty-six. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order: Christ the firstfruits; then they that are Christ at His coming; then cometh the end, when He shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when He shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. It should be noted, first of all, that there is no definite statement here that the resurrection is divided into two parts. But even on premillennial principles, only an implied interval between the resurrection of the saints and the consummation of all things. Actually, in this passage, Paul has believers only in mind and does not say anything at all about a resurrection of unbelievers. The point that he is making is that just as all die in Adam, so all who are made alive are made alive in Christ. Christ and Adam each acted in a representative capacity and as the federal head of his people. Whenever Paul uses the term in Christ, he includes believers only. Never in his writings or in other New Testament writings for that matter, are unbelievers said to be in Christ. Hence in this passage he sets forth only two orders of the resurrection, namely Christ's resurrection and they that are Christ's at his coming. Christ is the firstfruits. Believers belong to the harvest. Nothing is said about unbelievers or about the resurrection of unbelievers in the entire chapter. And since nothing can be proved from silence, there is no basis at all for the notion that this passage sets forth a period of time between the resurrection of the righteous and that of the wicked. When Paul speaks of the resurrection of Christ, then of those that are his at his coming, and adds, then come at the end, premillennialists attempt to get from this statement a long interval of time, and to interpret it to mean the end of the resurrection, that is, the resurrection of the wicked, which they say comes at the end of the millennium. Dr. Gerhardus Voss who admittedly is one of the most capable exegetes that the church has produced, says that the Greek word eta, meaning then, in itself may mean sequence with or without chronological interval, but that in this instance the construction indicates rather that it is to be understood with reference to the close of the great eschatological finale, which leads over from this age into the coming one. He adds that the end, here spoken of, follows closely the second coming of Christ, and that it is the giving up of the kingship to God, the Father, and that this giving up is nothing else but the culminating result of the eschatological process of subduing the enemies. A quote from the Pauline Eschatology, page 244. Let it be noticed that Paul does not say that after the resurrection of those who are Christ then comes the end of the resurrection, but only that then comes the end. Where this expression, the end, is used in other places in scripture, it means the end of all things, or the end of the world. There is no reason why it should be given another meaning here. The natural meaning is that the resurrection of the righteous and the grand finale, the very last end, fall together. Verse 52 tells us that the resurrection of the righteous occurs at the last trump. Hence, since this is the last trump, there can be no other trump for another resurrection a thousand years later. Dr. Warfield says concerning this passage, Because the resurrection of the wicked is not mentioned, it does not at all follow that it is excluded. The whole section has nothing to do with the resurrection of the wicked, which is only incidentally included, and not openly stated in the semi-parenthetic explanations of verses 21 and 22 but like the parallel passage in 1 Thessalonians confines itself to the Christian dead nor is it exegetically possible to read the resurrection of the wicked into the passage as a third event to take place at a different time from that of the good as if the apostle had said each shall rise in his own order Christ the first fruits then Christ Dead of his coming, then the end of the resurrection, namely the wicked. The term "the end" is a perfectly definite one with a set and distinct meaning, and from Matthew uh, chapter 24 verse 6 and chapter 24 verse 14 throughout the New Testament, and in these very epistles, 1 Corinthians 1:8, 2 Corinthians 1 verses 13 and 14, is the standing designation of the end of the ages or the end of the world it is illegitimate to press it into any other groove here relief is not however got by varying the third term so as to make it say that then comes the end accompanied by the resurrection of the wicked for this is importing into the passage what there is absolutely nothing in it to suggest the word tagma does not in the least imply succession but means order only in the sense of that word in such phrases as orders of society. Not only, however, is there no exegetical basis for this exposition in this passage, the whole theory of a resurrection of the wicked at a later time than the resurrection of the just is excluded by this passage. Briefly, this follows from the statement that after the coming of Christ, then comes the end. Verse 24. No doubt the mere word then, etta, does not assert immediateness and for aught necessarily said in it the end might be only the next event mentioned by the apostle although the intervening interval should be vast and crowded with important events but the context here necessarily limits this then to immediate sequence a quote from biblical and theological studies page 484 when we realize that this is the chief passage in the writings of Paul to which premillennialists appeal, we see how little support is to be found for this system in his epistles. The third passage that is alleged to teach two resurrections is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13-17 But we would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them that fall asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as the rest, who have no hope, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also that are fallen asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we that are alive, that are left unto the coming of the Lord, shall in no wise precede them that are fallen asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we that are alive, that are left, shall together with them be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. The controversial statement in this passage is in verse 16, The dead in Christ shall rise first. Here we find that some of the Christians in the church in Thessalonica who had lost loved ones and who evidently looked for the Lord's return in the near future were worried for fear that when he did come to take those who were living, their loved ones who had died would be left behind. Hence Paul writes to assure them that their Christian dead shall not be left behind, but that in fact they shall be raised first, and that then the living and the dead shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. When the premillennialist reads Paul's words, and the dead in Christ shall rise first, he immediately adds in his imagination and the dead without Christ shall rise last but that is not what Paul says the contrast is not between the resurrection of believers and of unbelievers but between the resurrection of believers and the transfiguration or catching up of believers who are alive when Christ returns whereas the Thessalonians were afraid their loved ones who had died would not share in the glory of the Lord's return Paul assures them that they will indeed share in it that in fact by their resurrection they will be the first to share in it, and that then they and the living believers shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. There is in this passage, as with the others, no reference at all to the resurrection of the wicked. Rather, Paul says that the resurrection of the righteous has preference, not in regard to the wicked, but to the catching up or rapturing of the living saints that the righteous dead shall not be one moment behind the living righteous in gaining the presence of the Lord. There is here, as with the other passages, no basis at all for the doctrine of a second resurrection. One other verse that sometimes is quoted to prove that there are two resurrections is Philippians 3, verse 11. If by any means I may attain unto the resurrection from the dead, This is changed to read the resurrection from among the dead or the out resurrection from the dead implying that the righteous are raised up and out of others who are left behind. It is said that Paul here expressed himself as striving to attain unto the first resurrection in order that he might share in the millennial reign. But in the Greek the phrase used is ek nekron from the dead and it is left to the reader to decide whether the supplement should be from among the dead or from the place of the dead or from the state of the dead. In other places, necron is used without the ek and is translated of the dead. This technical argument, however, proves nothing, for in 1 Corinthians 15.12, ek necron and necron are used interchangeably. Where admittedly the reference in both cases is to the resurrection of the righteous. Now, if Christ is preached that he hath been raised from the dead, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Here the resurrection of Christ himself is cited as a resurrection from the dead. Hence the expression cannot mean that only the wicked remain for a future resurrection. Again, necron without ek is used of the righteous in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 42 through 44 so also is the resurrection of the dead it is sown in corruption it is raised in incorruption it is sown in dishonor it is raised in glory it is sown in weakness it is raised in power it is sown a natural body it is raised a spiritual body actually the terms are interchangeable and the use of the one or the other determines nothing regarding the time of the resurrection. Snowden points out that this same Greek preposition, ek, as used in Philippians 3.11, occurs in other passages where no one would think it means from among, as in John 6.26, Because ye ate of the loaves, and Galatians 3.7, They that are of faith, In most cases, this preposition is translated simply from and has no such meaning as this unscholarly premillenarian interpretation seeks to place upon it. A quote from The Coming of the Lord, page 176. We are told in other passages that all of the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God in the same day and hour and that they shall rise in a general resurrection. Marvel not at this, for the hour cometh in which all that are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good, unto the resurrection of life; and they that have done evil, unto the resurrection of judgment. John 5 verses 28 and 29. And in Acts 24:15 we read, "There shall be a resurrection, singular, both of the just and unjust." Four times in the Gospel of John we are told that Christ will raise up believers at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that of all that which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. 6.39 For this is the will of my Father, that every one that beholdeth the Son and believeth on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 6.40 No man can come to me except the Father that sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. 6.44 And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. 6.54 And according to John 12.48, The last day is also the time of the judgment of the wicked. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings hath one that judgeth him. The word that I spake, the same shall judge him in the last day. Since the resurrection of the righteous is at the last day, it cannot occur a thousand years before the last day. And since after the last day there are no other days on which the wicked might be raised, their resurrection too must occur at this same time. In 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 the resurrection of the wicked was not mentioned not because they do not rise at the same time but because they do not rise on the same principle. The righteous are represented by and entitled to life in Christ and the resurrection bodies like his are glorious and incorruptible. But no such principle governs the resurrection of the wicked. No one stands representative for them or assumes their guilt. Instead, each stands alone. Our conclusion must be that all of the dead without exception rise at the same time in what we call a general resurrection at the end of the world. There is but one resurrection, but there are two classes of people, the just and the unjust. As they come forth, the separation takes place into the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust. And in contrast with the very long period of time assigned by premillennialists for the events of the end time, 1,000 years, as taken from the highly figurative passage in Revelation 20, verses 1-10, the more didactic portions of Scripture, and particularly the writings of Paul, indicate that the events will transpire in the shortest possible period. The dead are raised, the living saints are transformed in the twinkling of an eye, and together they are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. These events are represented as practically simultaneous. The judgment, too, occurs on this last day. So also immediately it seems, or at least within a relatively short time, Christ and his people return to earth where the judgment takes place. The fact that it is called the last day is proof that it is the end of this world or of this age, not the end of time for us as individuals, for as finite human beings we shall always be creatures of time. In the nature of the case, the last day cannot be followed by any other days or time or seasons, whatever. These events close what is called this world or this age and are followed by the age to come, which we call eternity. A further problem that arises regarding the premillennial scheme is what becomes of the saints who died during the millennium and what becomes of the righteous who are on earth at the end of the millennium. The answers to these questions may be somewhat startling to the reader for the fact is this whole subject is a blank in the system. Premillennialists do not profess to have any scripture on the subject. All that the scripture has to say about the resurrection of the saints they apply to those who are raised up at the rapture or at the beginning of the millennium. For the most part, the subject is avoided. Those who have attempted to grapple with this problem have been able to offer nothing more than conjectures or human speculations. One of the older writers, Edward Bickerstaff, suggests that both righteous Jews and righteous Gentiles will continue into eternity here on earth, a righteous race, generation after generation and will therefore be continually propagating their kind and adding more souls to the kingdom. His reasoning is, the covenant with Noah was an everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh for perpetual generations. The covenant with Abraham is called by the psalmist the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. So Moses describes the Lord as keeping covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. This period of a thousand generations thus repeatedly mentioned would reach far beyond the close of the millennium. The promises made to Isaiah concerning the kingdom of Christ and his reigning on the throne of David are in the strongest expressions of never-ending continuance. The same promise of perpetuity is often given to the people of Israel. Thy people shall be all righteous they shall inherit the land forever. Isaiah sixty twenty one. Corresponding with this is that very full and clear promise they shall dwell in the land and they and their children and their children's children forever and my servant David shall be their prince forever. The plain and obvious meaning of such passages would lead us to the conclusion of a continuance both of Israel and Gentile nations in a state of righteousness on our earth. Quoted by David Brown from the second advent page 169 on premillennial principles this would seem to be a logical conclusion it agrees with the view of some more recent dispensationalists who hold that there are to be two groups of the Lord's people the Jews on earth and the church in heaven permanently separate it fails however to give due consideration to the statements in 2 Peter 3 verses 7-10 through that the world is to end in fire which statement premillennialists, in general, take literally. One writer suggests that fire falls on the rebel hosts around Jerusalem, but that the city itself is preserved. The argument, however, seems far-fetched. It is a generally understood principle of interpretation that references to perpetuity are to be extended no further than the known duration of the thing spoken of. The Jews, for instance, were commanded to keep such institutions as the Sabbath and the Passover throughout their generations by an ordinance forever. But that meant not throughout all eternity, but through the duration of their particular polity, that is, through what we now term the Old Testament period. With the coming of Christ and the institution of the new covenant, those things were fulfilled and done away with. On this principle, the references to perpetual generations, thousand generations, inheriting the land forever, and such carry no weight. Paul says that after the resurrection, then cometh the end, 1 Corinthians 15:24, and Peter refers to the end of all things, 1 Peter 4, verse 7. But it would seem that according to this theory, there is never to be an end of anything. Chapter 11, page 275, The Judgment The doctrine of the judgment traditionally held by the church and set forth in the great historic confessions of faith is that there is to be a day of judgment immediately following the resurrection and that all mankind will be included. But if dispensationalism sets forth three or four resurrections, it is not less fruitful in reaping a rich harvest of judgments the Scofield Bible which as we have seen is the textbook for modern dispensationalism sets forth seven which are as follows 1. the judgment of believers' sins 2. the judgment of self in the believer 3. the judgment of believers' works 4. the judgment of the living nations 5. the judgment of Israel 6. the judgment of fallen angels Seven, The Great White Throne Judgment Not all dispensationalists, however, have insisted on as many as seven. Dr. Feinberg distinguishes four. One, that of believers. Two, that of Israel. Three, that of the living nations at the time Christ returns. And four, that of the Great White Throne. A quote from premillennialism or amillennialism pages 191-194. to For each of these he gives five particulars, the subjects, the time, the place, the basis, and the results. Blackstone likewise distinguishes four, omitting the judgment of Israel and substituting a judgment of angels, which he says follows that of the great white throne. This series of judgments, he tells us, requires intervals of time, and so precludes the idea of a general judgment. A quote from Jesus is Coming, pages 101 to 106. Haldman also distinguishes four judgments. One, that of the cross, when Christ took our sins upon himself. Two, that at the judgment seat of Christ, which takes place in the air immediately after the rapture, and is the judgment of Christians only. They being judged not in regard to life and salvation, but only on the basis of their faith and good works and receiving greater or lesser rewards. Three, that of the living nations at the revelation based on their treatment of the Lord's brethren in the flesh, the Jews. And four, that at the great white throne which occurs at the close of the millennium. A quote from Ten Sermons on the Second Coming, page 299. Dr. James M. Gray sets forth still another series of judgments. He says that the Day of Judgment is a long period of time during which several distinct acts or scenes of judgment takes place. These are a judgment of Christian believers in the air after the rapture, a judgment of the Jewish nation on the earth, a judgment of the Gentile nations, this also on the earth after the revelation, a judgment of Gog and Magog at the close of the millennium, this also on the earth, and a final judgment of all the dead. A quote from Christ and Glory, pages 199 to 212. This diversity of opinion among representative premillennialists indicates that they do not have clear scripture proof for their views. Our chief interest, however, has to do with the series of judgments outlined in the Scofield Bible. The first of these termed the judgment of believer's sins, we are informed, took place at Calvary, where Christ took our sins upon himself and condemned them. It is a fact, of course, that our sins were paid for and blotted out by his suffering and death on the cross. But since no individuals appear in that transaction, it is difficult to see on what grounds it should be called a judgment. Christ's work on the cross is more accurately referred to as an expiation, or an atonement. The second, the judgment of self in the believer, is a prolonged process in the soul of every Christian, beginning at the time of his conversion and continuing throughout his life as his actions and his inner thoughts are scrutinized in the light of God's Word. Conscience plays an important part here. We merely point out, however, that the working of conscience is not even in the same category with what we mean when we speak of final judgment and to speak of it as such only leads to confusion the third is the judgment of believers works this is said to be based on Paul's words in 2nd Corinthians 5.10 for we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he hath done whether it be good or bad but there is no reason why these words should not be understood as describing a general judgment at the end of the age dispensationalists say that this judgment takes place following the rapture they also say that Paul's words were addressed to Christians and that his use of the pronoun we indicates that only Christians will be present at this judgment but that argument is far from conclusive As Dr. Murray says, even if Paul is addressing Christians and telling them that they must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that does not mean that they shall be there by themselves. He is alluding to a universal judgment which shall be experienced by all men, Christians included. In the context, he refers to the terror of the Lord. We can hardly imagine that Paul would associate any terror with our Lord's dealing with the church between the rapture and the revelation after he had welcomed the church to himself. A quote from Millennial Studies, page 163. There is no reason why this should not be the same judgment referred to in Revelation 20, where John says that the dead, the great and the small, shall stand before the throne, and that they are judged according to their works. Verse 12. John says that every man is judged, and Paul says that all are judged, so that each one may receive the things done in the body. Second Corinthians 5.10 In each case, the judgment is according to their works. The fourth is the judgment of the living nations. This is one of the most important judgments in the dispensational system, for it determines what nations are to enter the millennial kingdom. The scripture alleged to teach this judgment is Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, where the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. For this judgment all of the nations of the earth existing at the time of Christ's return, that is, at the time of the revelation, when he returns to earth with his saints, are gathered together before him as judge, and they are judged on the basis of the treatment they have accorded his brethren, that is, the Jews, during the great tribulation. The sheep nations, those that have befriended the Jews, enter the millennial kingdom, and the goat nations, those that have persecuted the Jews, are destroyed. Scofield says, This judgment is to be distinguished from the judgment of the great white throne. Here there is no resurrection, no books are opened. Three classes are present, sheep, goats, and brethren. The time is the return of Christ, and the scene is on the earth. The test in this matter is the treatment accorded by the nations to those whom Christ here calls my brethren. These brethren are the Jewish remnant who will have preached the gospel of the kingdom to all nations during the tribulation. A quote from page 1036. Dispensationalists identify the location of this judgment as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, a valley on the east of Jerusalem, separating it from the Mount of Olives no explanation is given as to how the nations can be assembled within such a limited area or how they shall be transported there or whether or not this judgment is made through representatives they do insist however that the decrees of this judgment have nothing to do with individuals but only with nations in their corporate existence but the fact of the matter is that a nation has no existence apart from the individuals who compose it and that it is impossible to reward or punish a nation except by rewarding or punishing the individuals that make up that nation. If any nation as such were to have pronounced upon it the words of blessing pronounced in this judgment, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, or the words of condemnation, Depart from me, ye cursed, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. Verses 34 and 41. Then, since it is the nation in its corporate existence that is judged, all the individuals of such a nation would inevitably receive the same reward or suffer the same punishment.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.